Welcome to the Inspiring Brains Podcast, hosted by Nick Thielen. Join Nick as he talks to comedians, artistic people, and of course, the music scene. Any scene you can think of pop culture related, that's Nick Thielen. And now, here's your host, Nick Thielen. Let the Inspiring Brains Podcast begin! Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Inspiring Brains Podcast with Nick Thielen. My guest today is Ryan Niemiller from Season 14 of America's Got Talent. He was the third place uh, winner, and uh, he was on America's Got Talent and America's Got Talent Champions. How are you doing today, Ryan? Good. How are you, buddy? Been a bit. I'm I'm great, man. Uh, Good to to finally see you, and uh, how how are you holding up uh, in in, uh, the U.S. right now? I think Things are a little bit crazy, I know. So. Oh yeah, it, it, it's a blast. It is a a good time. I haven't worked since March, and um, we're one of the only countries in the world that progressively gets worse at dealing with this pandemic. So it's uh it's been very interesting. But yeah. uh, trying to keep spirits up, I've been working on my, what projects I can from home. Uh, yeah. I took the time to move across the country, so I live in California now. So. Uh, I've been getting some stuff done, but yeah, I'm I'm itching to get back to work. Uh, so stay home and wear a mask, damn it. <laughs> exactly. So, but that the move, everything must have been uh, must have been planned, right? But I guess it's good, you know, having the, the little bit of time off, I guess, to be able to to, to move and to get settled in. Uh, it, it was originally planned for the end of this year. It was something that I kind of factored in because my my schedule was full yeah. for for this year. So I was just going to be on the road touring. And it was a situation where uh, my girlfriend and I decided, like, hey, Ryan, you're not going to have this much free time once everything gets going again. Yeah. So let's go ahead and do this now. So, it, I mean, it was stressful. It was uh, it was really tricky trying to uh, uh, not freak out while you're moving you and a U-Haul and everything across the country and figuring out, can I stay at this hotel? Which hotel looks the cleanest? Um yeah. Because uh, I'm not a diva with that type of stuff. I mean, I have a uh, my, my career is littered with sleeping in my car at dirty truck stops and <laughs> things yeah. like that. So I'm not like a clean freak, but but th- like this is kind of serious. So <laughs> you want to make sure you're safe. So it was stressful, but uh, got all settled in. Uh, I like the inside of my apartment. I haven't really got to explore much because everything's closed. But uh, but yeah, it's nice. It's uh, it was it's cool to get it done and kind of be settled in here. I've been doing stand up. You know myself for uh, for just over five years now, and you, you yourself are uh, about fourteen years in. And I'm just wondering if you can take me back to the first time you uh, you tried stand up and what it was like for you, what you remember about the experience. Um, a, a lot of it's a blur. Like, if you want to be technical, my very first stand up show ever was in first grade when I was six years old. Um, I, I have no idea what even made me know this was a thing. But like my class did this uh, this talent show, and for the most part, everybody was singing or you know playing a recorder poorly, <laughs> you know something, yeah. something like that. But I decided I was like, you know, I'm gonna tell jokes. So I got like a couple joke books and found like twelve or so just really bad one-liner pun kind of jokes and did a performance. Um, and then I didn't do it again for another twenty years. That was <laughs> so uh officially I started in 06. Um I had um I guess so I got a theater degree uh from Indiana State University 
And right after I graduated, I did like a three or four week uh, summer gig, basically just acting in a play. Um, as soon as that was over, I packed up my car and just drove to LA with intentions of starting stand up because I was dumb and didn't know you could start elsewhere. I thought you had to go to New York or LA. Wow. Uh, because I knew comedy existed other places. Yeah. Like there was comedy clubs in Indiana and stuff, but like I thought you got sent <laughs> from New York wow. or LA. Like they had like uh like an assembly line of, right, of packed right. comedians that they just <laughs> make and then <laughs> that way. Yeah. Um, but when when I, when I got to LA, like I didn't know where to start. I didn't know what to do. So I, I think I don't even know if Google existed at the time, but I was like searching on like Lycos or whatever the uh, equivalent uh, search engine was at the time for like what kind of like where do you start comedy? And there was a class being taught uh, at the Ice House in Pasadena um, by uh, she's still I'm still friends with her to this day. Her name's Bobby Oliver. She's been doing comedy for. 30, 40 years at this point. Um, she was kind of just teaching a class and that's sort of where I got started. Um, my first official gig, uh, and, and it's so sad, like I remember the date, but I don't remember the exact venue because it was such a blur because I wasn't expecting to perform that night. Okay. It was I know it was at a coffee shop and I want to say maybe in San Dimas, California or somewhere around there, yeah. but I'd never been to an open mic. So I kind of went my, uh, the teacher of the class, Bobby, was going to be at that open mic. So I just wanted to go watch and kind of just see how an open mic works because I'd never okay. seen it before. And unbeknownst to me, she signed me up on the list. Wow. So I just, I, again, you know, you don't want to be put on the spot and then like go like, no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so I went up there. I told the jokes that I'm working on the class that went fine. There was only like four people in the building. So it wasn't like it was super stressful. Yeah. But uh yeah, I, I remember it be it, it was a blur. It was like such a rush. Like even if it was pretty, you know, in the grand scheme, low impact, you know, there wasn't industry there. It wasn't my AGT audition or anything like that. But like at that, I was like, okay, I'm I'm hooked on this. And then yeah. kind of went, went from there. So that was like the first time you tried it. Would you say that was that was the first time where you were like, okay, I might have something here and like I can develop this into something that, you know people really enjoy and are and maybe you know uh make some money on it or or ha just have fun doing it. it it sounds strange but even before that i was like if i like get serious about this i i can make it happen mm -hmm. i'm i'm somebody who who i can be pretty lazy i'll be i'll be honest with you <laughs> but but if i'm passionate about something yeah. i get it done yeah and and I'll, I'll put my full effort into it i, I can't half-ass something i don't care about but but if, if you're like, okay, this is, you know, like, I, I loved comedy. Like, that after that first set, I was like, yep, this is what I'm going to do. I didn't know how I was going to get there. There's so much you have to learn and figure out and lots of ups and downs and lots of almost quitting and then coming back and all that type of stuff. But uh, I'd be lying if I said, like, in that moment, I was like, I could make money doing this because you just don't know, and <laughs> you know, how the business works at that point. But I was definitely like, okay, this is... I, I, I'm not just funny in my head. Some strangers yeah. actually liked what I did. So yeah. maybe we can cultivate this into something. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you had you auditioned uh, for AGT prior to getting on the show? Um, yeah. yeah, I had tried for about five years on and off. So okay. 
Uh, so it, and, and it was like through a multiple of channels. It was just showing up at one of the audition sites and kind of being in that long kettle call line where you just hope yeah. that someone sees you. Um, I went and got auditions based on recommendations from past um, contestants on the show, like uh, Taylor Williamson, who got second place, I want to say in season eight or season nine. Right. Um, I've been friends with him since near when I started. He's from Southern California. Um, you know, he as a, you know, he kind of gave me like he suggested me to go through um, what actually finally got me on the show, because I guess I kept getting closer and closer uh, before they pulled the trigger. Um, in between my fourth attempt and my fifth attempt, I had a video go viral. So I had a, an, it was an old set that I recorded for a, a TV show called Laughs, uh, aired on the Fox network. It was a syndicated show. And the, the full clip of that, um, Steve Hofstetter, after he bought Comedy Juice, he was kind of using those clips because Laughs was his show. So okay. he was like, hey, do you care if we use that clip? We already have it. And I was like, I don't have to do any work whatsoever. Mm -hmm. and he's like, nope. And I was like, cool, let it go. And it ended up getting like 1.6, 1.7 million views, something like that. And I was able to kind of go back to AGT and be like, hey, this happened since the last time we talked. Wow. What yeah, do you think about this? People, like I already, I have somewhat of an audience that really enjoys what I'm yeah, yeah, because that's part of it. And what they want to see, and this is what I sort of learned, um, and so if anyone's ever trying to, especially as a comedian, audition yeah. for America's Got Talent, yeah. what I was doing wrong the whole time is, is you, you know, you know as a comic that the energy of the room is important to what you do. Mm -hmm. So if you're performing in a dive bar, that energy is different than a comedy club, is right. different than a theater, is different than you know, America's Got Talent. They're different crowds, different energies. Right. And so when you go in an audition, literally sometimes you're in this giant room at noon with one producer and a camera person, and that's it. So that's like a weird energy right. as a stand-up comic. Right. But what they want to see, they don't care. They're, they're not comedy people. They're TV people. They want to see what you look like on television. So you have to like trick your brain and go in there and pretend this is for television. So your energy is going to be high. Yeah. It's going to be weird. It's going to feel weird because you're not used to doing that. You're used to reading what they give you and then giving that and working with it. They don't want to see that because they don't have the time for projects. You know, they have to, they have to make a TV show. So once I kind of learned and that video, since it was for a TV taping, they were able to go, oh, that's what you look like on television. Got it. Come on in. You can audition for the judges. So it's more like, uh, did you kind of approach it in the sense of like maybe a filmmaker would with a script with like a 60-second pitch, like an elevator pitch? Kind of. Yeah, because, because that's the other thing too. Like, you know, as, as great as that show was for me, it's not designed for stand-up comedy. No. You know, do, doing 90 seconds to two minutes of comedy is not how stand-up usually works. It's hard to get anything done right. in that amount of time. I was used to being a – I was a road headliner, you know, doing these kind of one-nighters and stuff. So I was doing 45 minutes to an hour every night. So you get, you get into this rhythm and this pace of like, oh, you can warm them up. And you, you can take 10, 15 minutes to really get them to let, you know, let them get to know you and figure out what you're about. For this, you have to be boom, 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 boom. 
So, um, so essentially that's what it is. You have to give them the hits and not mess around. You can't do long setups. You got to have a lot of punches in what you're doing. And, and I kind of tell stories, you know, yeah. like that's kind of how I, I do my comedy. So it was, it was hard figuring out like those quick jokes that had a lot of hits. And so it, it, it's definitely, a, it works your brain. It's a different muscle for sure. Take me through the process of the show a little bit. Was it all taped at one time or? Uh, so, so AGT works the first two rounds. Uh, now this year with the pandemic, all bets are off. So who knows how they're doing it. Okay. Um, but the, the first two rounds were taped. So that initial audition and then the judge cuts, those are taped ahead of time. Um, and, and that's not, you know, I'm not getting in trouble for that. That's not news. I mean, Right. Getting through the judge cuts, they literally tell you the prize is making it to the live shows. <laughs> That's what you're working towards. So there's no, you know, that there, there's no nothing weird about that. Um, but it, it was stressful. Uh, I, I will tell you that because, um, you know, I would have almost preferred it to be live going in because the show starts airing, uh, at least for me, it started airing late May. The initial audition was taped in March okay. and then the judge cuts were taped in April. So in real time, obviously I already knew I had done well and made it to the live shows, right. but you're not allowed to talk about it. So I could tell nobody. The only people that knew were my friends and family that were actually there. Okay. And then my like siblings who couldn't make it. So I let them know. But other than that, you have to keep it a secret because uh, you know, with those type of things, until it airs on television, it did not happen. Right. You're so, like, like it, exactly. Yeah. So if you spill the beans, they can just as easily be like, "Well, sorry, <laughs> you're 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 not there now." Well, the reason I was asking that is primarily just because I was wondering how much of the uh, how much did you possibly like uh, adjust your material as you're going through it. Uh, you know, like, did you, I mean, obviously you're getting a lot of feedback, you know, from, from uh, fans and friends and all that sort of stuff, but did you at any point change things up based on uh, opinions other than maybe like the producers telling you like, you know, please change this or do this in this way or. Um, for me, like, like you just, you can't, you, you get so many different opinions from fans and, and even your friends who are like, you should do this joke. You should do this joke. You should tell like stuff that they legitimately like, yeah. like you, you get hit from so many different angles with that, that, that for me, I was like, I'm just going to trust my own instincts on this. So, yeah. um, because a lot of it, you, you can't like, like in between the taping of the judge cuts and the live shows, we had a lot of time. It was from like April to August. Right. So I so you have a lot of time to work on it. And that was the most stressful one because that's the one that the producers themselves have the most time to work with you too. So it's very it's very particular what they're looking for. Um, so but but the whole process of just trying to get jokes approved is difficult. Yeah. Um, and, and not just not for the reasons you would think. There, there's so many other other things that exist like you know um you know for me getting like i didn't have a lot of problems they they trusted me for the most part and just they like okay we assume that you know what works so we'll work with you we'll kind of let you do what you want but here's the things we need to factor in as well okay. so there, there would be situations like getting um getting a set approved they were like okay well that set's really funny 
but there's not enough punches in it. So like, like, and and they were right. There was a couple like sets that I pitched that had two really strong jokes, but it would basically was two laughs only. Okay. And, and and they want more than that. And, and it made sense. And they were totally right. Yeah. Um, there were situations like, like obviously there's situation and, and I never tried to get away with anything too risque, but clearly it airs on prime time. It's a family friendly show. Yeah. You can't be dropping the F word or doing really gratuitous sex puns or, you know, anything like that. Yeah. So you have to factor that in. Um, I had a weird one. Um, I only basically had two jokes that outwardly had to be changed. Um, one was one was just bad timing, and one was uh, was just a, a silly thing that I didn't even think of. So, um, without getting too specific into this, I don't want to just redo my set. But uh, I do a uh, I did a joke about um, trying to get in shape, and my uh, my friend suggesting that I get a Fitbit. And I was like, oh, yeah, I heard Fitbits are a great way to lose some weight if you're fortunate enough to be born with wrists. You know, instead of counting my steps, I've been counting the amount of times I dropped my Fitbit. Right. That, that's basically the joke. It's not dirty. There's nothing risque about it. But in the original joke, I say Fitbit four times. Yeah. And Fitbit is a brand name. It's not like – and Fitbit is not paying yeah. America's Got Talent yeah. for advertising. So they were like, oh, we can't have you say – Fitbit that much. Uh, so I had, to, I had to edit it down so I didn't say the word Fitbit four times. So like things you don't even think about. Yeah. And, and then the other one that I had trouble with, um, so it was for the semifinals. Uh, I do a joke about my friends um, getting mad at me that I don't want to learn to swim. And they come up with these nightmare scenarios of like when I would need to swim to try to convince me. And the original joke talks about um, uh, it, it was essentially someone suggesting, what if you're on a boat and that boat starts to sink and there's no life jackets, what are you going to do? I'm like, well, I'm going to drown. And if I was on a boat, I was probably kidnapped. So I'm glad that the boat's sinking. I hope everybody dies. Like that's kind of the joke. Right. Unfortunately, and, and, and I, it was the right call for me to change the joke. But right. that week, there was this, um, I guess, a boat accident in California where like 38 people got trapped on a boat and basically died like during a night fire. So it was like, it was too fresh. And and those are things that like, obviously my joke isn't making fun of that, but the real world factors into things. You have to be able to be flexible because like, obviously I couldn't have planned that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, but like, it like, it was the right call. Cause if, cause I would have told that joke as is. The audience in California would have groaned and it would have made it look like I bombed on television. So you have to be flexible too. With each of your uh, sets, did you go in with the mindset thinking that whatever I, uh, whatever I show the judges, whatever, I, whatever jokes I tell uh, are essentially jokes that I have to retire from my act because then they've been on national television? Uh, yes and no. Um, it, it, it is one of those things that, like, now a lot of people that are coming to see me are seeing me because I was on AGT. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, some of those jokes have to be retired now. There, there are certain ones that were new enough that I still kind of keep around and have tweaked a little bit yeah. to kind of make work. Um, but, again, the other thing, too, um, that's interesting, some of those jokes that I used were already retired, 
like I wasn't using them in my normal act really at all anyway. Right. But you kind of have to to sometimes, you know, really look into the archives to find stuff that's going to work for this. So for me, a lot of them were retired, not because I, I didn't like the jokes. I just had been doing them for a long time and I would just wanted to do different stuff. So like my whole initial audition, um, all of those jokes I hadn't told in about five years before <laughs> I did them on AGT. So, so some stuff I've just retired because they were just like, because people asked me to do the bit. So I know that they know them. Uh, and there's a couple of them that I kept in just because they're part of a bigger thing. Yeah. And it kind of flies in. But, but yeah, I mean, I mean that's the, I mean, it's totally a, my diamond necklace is, is too heavy situation right. uh, of complaints. But once the jokes get on TV, they belong to TV. Uh, the fact that you were had to go through the process like five different times, the and, and having the time, you know, to, to better your act and, and you know get better over time. You think, you know, obviously it, it was the the right time for you to be a part of it, but obviously having had you gone on earlier, do you feel like you would have been ready or? Uh, no, had had I got AGT the first time I tried, I would have crashed and burned. No doubt. Uh, I, I'm confident that I would have had a really good audition. Yeah. I, I, I think just kind of my story and the novelty of what I do, it's so different than any other comic out there. Yeah. Like, like I think that would have, have got me a really good audition, but yeah. I, I didn't have the chops. I wasn't uh, as good a comic, so I didn't have, all, I didn't have the material at that time to make it through that process. Um, and I also wasn't like emotionally ready. Like, like that's stressful. Like, like the way that I was kind of doing the show for it to really change your career in a huge, huge way. You, as a comic, you kind of have to make the finals it's finals or bust. Right. You know, you're going to get a little bump just from being on the show, but if you don't make the finals, nobody remembers you, nobody cares. Right. So like, there was a lot of pressure, like it had to go well. And, and and even like I was ready, but it was still there was days where I was just like, oh, shit, like this is <laughs> I can't believe this is happening. You know? Overthinking like, will they like it or will, you know, what are they going to what are they going to think or. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's hard not to because like I'm really confident in my material. That's yeah. why like any sort of, you know when bookers or even like veteran comics have told me like over the years, like maybe you shouldn't talk about your arms. Maybe like you shouldn't, I was like, no, like, trust me, this is a unique point of view that people are going to super confident in what I do, but you have no margin for error on that show. If you only get like two minutes, two and a half tops, you know? So like if I pick two jokes that were the wrong jokes for the situation, you're done. Like, so, so there's like, you don't get a retry. You don't get to just, you know, you don't get to talk up there until you get your big laugh and then go home. Like, this is what you chose. It has to work. And essentially like once you're cast to be on the show, unless they do like a redemption version of it or some kind of thing, that's your opportunity. And I don't know if you're, are, are you, are they allowed to bring back cast contestants? I mean, I mean, it's a, it's, their TV show, they could do whatever the hell they want. If, <laughs> yeah, quite frankly, 
yeah. you know, that, that's up to them. But, but yeah, I mean, but you're essentially right. Like if you get your chance and it doesn't, and you don't crush it, you're done. Like, like you can't go in there with the assumption that they're going to bring you back in three years. You know, yeah. the, the only ones I've ever seen come back are comedy acts. So it's yeah. like, it's like people that were brought to be like, okay, this was a goofy audition. This was a memorable, bad audition. Right. You know, those people will get brought back because, like, oh, it's good at TV. But, yeah. like, if you make the semifinals, they're not bringing you back to try again later. You know, yeah. maybe champions. Like, you can get to do champions, possibly. Right. But, like, if you are really memorable. But you're not coming back to, like, try again in season 15. It yeah. has to work. Well, and that's what I kind of uh, got from – I had – before I had the chance to work with you, I, I had done another spot uh, at that club before, and just seeing like from from that experience, and uh, it made me think that like in order to be ready potentially for something like that, I have to have like you know five or six, you know at least five or more minute pieces that are killer that all have to like crush hard because like. Otherwise, it's not it's not at that level yet. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's tough. You you have to have like if your goal is AGT, something like that. Like like I was saying earlier, you have to have a lot of punches. So it has yeah. to be quick. It has to be boom, 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 boom. A lot of punches. Um, there has to be enough uniqueness in it that it's all different. And then the other thing I think a lot of people forget, you have to be squeaky clean too. Yeah. You got to remember, like, like sometimes they let you do a little innuendo if it's really clever wordplay. But, like, for the most part, like, like literally, this is for, like, families. This yeah, is for, like, you know, yeah, this is, like, parents watch the – it's, like, their family time. They'll watch it with their seven-year-old children. The yeah. amount of fan mail I got from parents or, like, or like you know, they're, like, oh, my seven-year-old loves you. Can he come to the show? And I'm like, well, my live show isn't quite the same. I'll, I'll meet the kid. I'll say hi and take a picture. But you'll have some explaining to do. Um, but, yeah, like so, like, when you're on there, you have to figure that in as well. And, and their version of clean isn't always what you think is clean. Yeah. There, there's so many comics, especially – and I was this way, too. Starting off, I was like, oh, I'm clean. I don't say the F word. Right. That doesn't mean you're clean. <laughs> it just means you don't say the F word. Right. So, so there, you have to – Okay. Have that, and then the other thing with AGT that makes it tricky is because they're they're not just a strict talent show. Like the talent's important, but it's also they're selling stories, they're selling personalities. So yeah. you have to have a dynamic story that you are willing to be vulnerable about and and talk about and and share. It, yeah. It's not necessarily it doesn't have to be tragedy per se, but you have to be willing to open up and let them get to know you as a person. And some people that's really uncomfortable. They don't want. Like, like there was acts that I saw that like were killer on stage, but they struggled with that like connecting and opening up because you know for one reason or another either it was too raw for them. Um, for a lot of the contestants, it's tough because English wasn't their first language, so it was hard for them to. Even if they were willing, it was just hard for them to communicate the same way. So there's a lot more that goes to it than just being good at what you do. Yeah. So on the on the show, you talked a little bit about. You know, uh, you know, Booker is not wanting to uh, to 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 have you to you know to headline or, or be part of shows. Uh, and I mean, I, I I've only been doing this for five years, but I've kind of run into some of the same things where you know 
people people uh, people have called me like a gimmick or you know think that I'm I'm only getting on a show because of my disability or you know ha- had some situations happen that were pretty tough like uh, oh yeah yeah like like I got that a ton coming up and I mean luckily there was enough people and I worked hard enough that a lot of people didn't care but right. yeah like like every booker in one way or another becomes like you know, the comedy gatekeepers. Like, they are, have this mentality of like, oh, I know better than everybody else. So this is what we're going to do. And, like, for me, it never made sense. Like, because it only seems that, like, comics with disabilities have this problem where being a quote-unquote gimmick is a bad thing. Because, like, some of the most successful comedians in the world, look, look at Larry the Cable Guy. That's completely a gimmick. Jeff Dunham is a gimmick. And they're two of the most, even someone like, you know, like that's not quite that obvious, but like Gabriel Iglesias, who I love. I'm fluffy. Like that's a gimmick. It's not like, like they're fun, but like at the end of the day, are you getting laughs and do people want to see you? Mm -hmm. That's all that should matter. If If you don't personally like that I make jokes about my arms, fine. But, like, I've literally gotten standing ovations because I crushed so hard. And then the booker was like, well, I don't know if our people like jokes about disabilities. It won't really work here. And I'm like, well, it worked there because I got a damn standing ovation. Like, like it, it never made any sense. Right. Um, wh- wh- I don't know why people want comics with, dis- uh, with disabilities to normalize themselves. It makes no sense to me. Because, again, I'm not going to be for everybody, but nobody is. And and at the end of the day, my arms are unique. It's something that's different. If I don't talk about my disability, sure, I'll have my own points of view, but I'm a mid-30s white bearded male comic at that point. Right. There are us by the billions <laughs> out there. So, like, like what, what I would say, and I don't think I need to tell you this, but anyone that might be in a similar situation to us, if people are like that, at the end of the day, funny is what matters. If you're funny, you're going to have to work harder. But, man, screw those guys. They don't know what they're talking about. Because I've been told for years that, that oh, talking about your arms will never work. And then I got third place on America's Got Talent, and I'm buying a house. One of the things I struggle with a little bit, uh, especially, like, some people in the audience, uh, what – you know, obviously people will heckle, but the, the thing I find toughest is when there's people in the crowd that are like, they're like, ah, or they feel bad for me. And it's like, that that's the hardest thing to deal with because I haven't really figured out quite how to approach it yet because it's like, I could make fun of the person, but like, it's, uh, it's a tough one because like, the thing is like, I don't, you know, it's not like you just got a puppy for Christmas. Like I'm not here, I'm here to make people laugh, not upset you you know it's like it yeah the way that i always tried to deal with that because that was that was always my least favorite sound i would rather have someone say you suck than go oh yeah. um and the way that i always looked at it personally if if it happens once it's just a sensitive person or like a one-off if you tell a joke and it gets awes more often than not or even a, a decent chunk the joke's wrong. Right. You got to fix the joke some way. Because okay. my, my act is particularly crafted. Like, I'm not, like, you watch what I did. I'm not ashamed to talk about my disability. I don't hide from it. 
but I didn't get any sympathy. I didn't get any awes. And, and that takes years. It took years of crafting because there are things that to us are hilarious. But to other people, they're going to be like, that's horrible. You had to deal with that? Yeah. We've kind of gotten over it enough where it's funny. Right. You have, but so, but like, if the way that you're telling it is still getting that sympathy response, there's something wrong with how you're telling it. You got to change gears a little bit to okay. make it so you don't get it. It's, uh, and I think this with every, it's not just jokes about disabilities, it's jokes about anything. Yeah. If, if you tell a joke that even if you don't mean it this way, but people are offended by it a lot or like more than they just think it's funny, then you don't get to tell them not to be offended. Right. You can either decide that that offense is worth pushing through and you're going to like, suck it, I'm doing it anyway. Or you have to understand that I, I hate this conversation that so many comics have about, oh, the world's too PC. It's, no, the world changes. You don't get to tell yeah. people what's offensive to them. You get to decide if them being offended is worth you still telling that joke or not. At the end of the day, it's a business. If I tell a joke that like 75% of the time gets people mad, it's a bad joke. I'm not making money off it. So stop with this PC nonsense, everybody. Yeah, it's it's not really – yeah, I would say from my perspective, it's not really because the joke itself is offensive. It's because they feel bad for my situation. It's like I, I just deal with the cards I'm dealt like any other person. Yeah, yeah, and that's just something like like eventually, and I'm sure you're in the process of it every time you do a show. There's, there's just little things you're going to learn. Like for me, it was just be loud and confident. Yeah. You can't feel bad for me. My life's awesome. What is <laughs> what, what is wrong with you people? Yeah. I have famous friends, and I get to travel, and I was on television. Like, suck it. Like, yeah, my life's great. You don't get to feel bad for me. Yeah. It's definitely a thing that I think I'm working on as I as I develop, and it's one of it's it's a it's a tough line for me to figure out because I'm about 100. You met me, so I'm about 100 pounds, and you know, a fairly skinny guy on stage, and I try to move around as much as I can. But if I ever like yell or get really aggressive, people kind of uh, get get a bit shocked, and then they hold back, and it, that's tough too. So it's a, it's about finding that balance for sure. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and and it's finding what's what's authentic to you. Right. If, if people don't, because like I, I don't picture you as a guy who yells like just anyway. No. I, I don't, I don't picture you just being a guy who's like gets fired up. Like if, if his team loses, it's like mother. <laughs> I don't see you being that guy anyway. You still have to be authentic to you. You yeah. don't like like for me, being confident just means being louder than everybody. Like that, that's kind of how it works for my personality. You just yeah. got to figure out what works for you mm -hmm. and realize like, like at the end of the day, that's your stage. So, so they're going to deal with whatever you do. They don't have to like it. <laughs> they're not, 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 people aren't obligated to like what you do, but when you're up there, that's your time. Yeah. To develop it as you want. So, but I was wondering what your, what your particular writing process is like for you. Are you a person who sits down and paper? I know I record all my stuff personally and then I listen to them or, or I video them if I get the chance. But. Oh, for, for me, uh, I have never sat down with a pen and paper and written a joke that works. Mm -hmm. That that particular style does not work for me or at least hasn't up to this point. Because um, mm -hmm. what happens for me, if I try to write that way, if I, if I grab this pen here and I'm like, oh, it's, it's writing time. Let's do, yeah. let's do an hour of writing. Instead of just 
thinking what I think is funny. <laughs> That's my fiance. Hello, fiance. <laughs> <laughs> but like, like instead of like just sitting there and thinking, okay, what do I think is funny? My brain starts going, what do people think is funny? Do yeah. people like dogs? What can I write about dog? Like, my brain doesn't become authentic to to me. I just start trying to write what I think people are gonna like, and it never works. So, so my writing style has always been just whenever I'm doing something, keep my ears and eyes open right. and just let those situations happen. Because if you write, at least, again, this is just for me, but if you write your life experiences and they don't, it doesn't have to be major things like living with a disability, but like if you're writing things that happen to you, it's going to be hard for anyone to copy you. Because that actually happened to you. That's your life. This happened to you at the store. It didn't happen to me at the store. It happened to you. So I just I keep my ears and eyes open. If something triggers, like I see something that's funny, I'll make a note in my phone. And then if I still feel good about it in a couple days, I'll try it at an open mic. Or I'll throw it into a show that I'm doing. Um, I've never written a joke word for word. I've never sat down and written like this is how the joke beats out. I try it on stage and I, I trust my comedy voice enough that I can construct it in some sort of way with setup punch. And then I workshop it that way until I feel, okay, this is where I want it to be. And then, then it's part of the act then. What is over all the years that you've worked, what, what is your most memorable uh, road story? Like, you know, obviously I've done a few weird gigs myself. Is there any that, that stand out for you that you remember? Um, one of the best ones, it actually, it, this one was actually pretty close to home when I was living in Indianapolis. So I, at least I didn't have to travel too far for this, or I probably would have been more disappointed. But I'd never seen anything like this in my life. Uh, so we were doing a, a Sunday show at this bar in Indianapolis, and barely anyone was there. So there was maybe... This was probably four or five years ago at this point. So before AGT, before any of that, mm -hmm. um, there was maybe five real audience members there that were there for the show. And then probably two or three career alcoholics who wow. would be there anyway. Yeah. So, so when we get in, um, the jukebox is playing and it's Sunday, so there's some football games that are just yeah. on the TV. But they're muted because the jukebox is going. Fine. So uh, we get out there, turn the jukebox off. We didn't even turn the TVs off. So the TV's still on. Um, I, I was supposed to headline. So the host goes up there, starts telling his jokes, you know, whatever. Right. One of the drunks at the bar starts heckling. Yeah. And nothing even crazy, just standard drunk guy at a dive bar heckling that I'm sure you've seen. I've seen a thousand times, whatever. So the host kind of gives it back to him a little bit. Ha ha ha. Like, thinks it's all in good fun, but it's like, oh, we were told we can do the show. We're doing the show. The guy's complaining that he can't hear the football games. He couldn't hear them before. But whatever. He's <laughs> off. Yeah. Yeah. But so but the host, I guess, says something. I, and I don't remember exactly what he said. I don't have the memory of that. But I guess he insulted this drunk at the bar in some way that when the feature went up. That drunk called the owner of the bar, told him what happened, 
in the middle of the feature set, the show got canceled. So it, it, it was the weirdest thing. So the feature got to finish his set, and then the host went up and was like, well, this has never happened before, but I just got word from the owner that the show is canceled. So good night, everybody. I yeah. still got paid. I was only making oh, like 50 wow. bucks or something like that. But I had never seen like – and it made sense from a business standpoint. Like that that career drunk spends more there in a week wow. than we brought in for that comedy show. So yeah. so if that guy like threatened to – but it, it was this – I've never seen a show canceled mid-stream – no. by a heckler who called the owner. It was the craziest thing. Um, easiest 50 bucks I've ever made. I didn't have to perform, so it was nice. Wow, yeah. I was gonna, cause me, I've, you know, I've, I've performed at like weird places like strip clubs or wherever oh, they'll sure. allow an open mic, which is, you know, strange in itself. But yeah, that's never, never mid show. Uh, and one, one thing I wanted to ask about, you know, I, I myself uh, grew up in a trailer as well because my parents uh, built their own house. And so that, that story kind of resonated with me, you know, uh, in particular, I remember when I was growing up, uh, so our, our setup, we had like a washer and dryer on one side and the bathroom was on the other side. So if we were mm -hmm. ever doing laundry, the whole floor would shake and it would cause the toilet to basically become like this nice, like massage toilet almost. <laughs> that's what I remember from the entire like years of living there, which I, that's like the thing I miss. But is there any like stories, you know, that from growing up being a being a trailer park kid i guess that oh, like growing up in a trailer like it does weird stuff to your brain like it, 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 and th this is how it works for everyone to some extent but like when you are really young and growing up you just don't know the world yet so that's your perspective of how you think everything is yeah. Like, like when you're really young, like when I was like six, seven, eight years old, I love living in a trailer park because my friends are so close to me. Right. Look how close all these trailers are. It's mm -hmm. so easy to go see all my friends. And then you hit like a certain age, you turn like 11 and you're like, oh no, everyone is so close to me. <laughs> this is terrible. Uh, yeah, but the trailer was weird because we were packed in there too. So like I'm one of four kids. So there was six of us in there. Um, you know, uh, I didn't have a bed until I was in college. Um, and and you don't realize how weird that is until you start meeting other people. And they're like, what do you mean you didn't have a bed? How the hell didn't you have a bed? <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, we, we always had issues. Um, you know, in our trailer, like by the end of it, before we moved out, uh, I was probably 13, 14 when we uh, started renting a house at that point. But like... My, my dad was like the he, he was one of those guys that like always had these like ideas like I'm gonna I'm gonna fix that and then just uh -oh. never did yeah so um I remember one day waking up um so we had developed this hole in the bathroom floor like just the wood ate out so there was this hole and and, and my dad worked a lot but like so like temporarily he had put like just a piece of plywood over the hole right. With intentions to fix it, but that ended up lasting months because my dad just one of those guys that had I'm gonna I'll do it and then yeah. just do it. Yeah. Um, and eventually, what what made it get fixed is uh, the day that I woke up uh, and there was a possum on my pillow because <laughs> in the middle of winter these possums oh, were climbing into the house for warmth because <laughs> they could get in through that hole. And um, 
Yeah, being like nine years old and like having the first thing you see when you open your eyes is like a possum literally staring you in the face. Um, yeah, like like and then like a family of them walked over my brother because he was sleeping on the floor too in another room. And um, yeah, so and that's not normal. You're not supposed to have possums <laughs> on your pillow. Um, so tra- trailer life is weird. I'm uh, it may be strong, but I'm glad I hopefully won't ever have to do that again. Cool. I have one other question uh, for you. Um, sure. I know you're a big fan of like video games and stuff, and I was just wondering. Uh, do you take like a, a list of all the video games that you're still looking to, to get with you on the road? Uh, or do you have a big collection? What is it like? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, so that, that is my road vice. So a, a lot of comics are, you know, trying to pick up women or it's drinking or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, I am so squeaky clean on all that stuff. Um, but but I love video games. I've always loved video games. Uh, and I have a collector's mentality. I don't just want to play stuff. I like to display as well. You can probably see the uh, the Pac-Man. I think it's over here. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> That's a, a Pac-Man board game that I bought. Uh, so I own probably a good 2,000 games from all kinds of systems, going from like Atari to now. Um, I actually have a, uh, a couple apps that are on my phone and on my computer that you can track your collection with. And that's kind of how I know. Because I got to a point where my collection was just getting big enough, I was accidentally rebuying things. Okay. Because I couldn't remember, did I buy it or did I want to buy it? And then I would accidentally rebuy it again. So uh, thank God for these apps because it helps keep everything together. And, and then the cool thing is, too, um, because I, you know, I, I don't talk about it all the time, but I'll post that I'm playing video games, you know, like on my Instagram and things like that. So like occasionally like fans will bring old games they don't want anymore to me at a show. And like, if they bring me enough, like I'll give you some free stickers or I'll give you a free shirt, you know, cause for me, like, like growing up poor, like we, we didn't have nothing, but there was always stuff that you wanted that you couldn't have just because we didn't have the money for it. And there was four kids and we couldn't all have these huge collections of things. Right. So now that I'm an adult, like I want to have all the cool stuff I didn't get to have as a kid. So uh, video games is a big one. So I, I collect with that stuff. So if uh, anyone watching uh, has any games they don't want, hit your boy up. All right, I'll take them off your hand. The ones in particular, like, uh, like WD... WWF No Mercy or any of those classic uh, wrestling games that you? Oh yeah, I, I, I got those. I got the N64 ones. Um, I, I have a lot of old wrestling games. I'm obviously a big wrestling fan. Uh, that's where the Cripple Threat name came from. Um, but but yeah, man, like like I'm a completionist collector. So there's obviously games that I I want because I love them and they're great games. But I like to have complete sets of things. So I also have, you know, a lot of like Barbie's Dream Fun House convertible <laughs> machine. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Because like that's how you complete the collection. Like they're not high priority. <laughs> I, I'm not at the point yet where I'm spending hundreds of dollars for a weird Barbie game that might be rare or whatever. <laughs> I, I like to have complete sets. It's, it gives me something to work for because not to get too serious, but the road can be lonely. You know, like, like like traveling on the road, as much as I love the shows and I'm very fortunate that I get to go to all these places and perform, 
You're still spending time away from your friends. You're away from your family. You spend a lot of time just in hotels or driving or airports. So this gives me something positive to kind of focus on when I'm in these places where I might not know anybody. At least I can find the local video game store and find kind of see if I can find some cool stuff for my collection. And as a like a feature headliner, you're not doing as as many like road gigs with comics, right? Are you, or is that does that change? Uh, luckily, um, with just kind of how everything happened after AGT, for the most part, um, I'm able to bring my road opener with me. Um, he's a guy I've known for like nine, ten years. Um, we both started in the Midwest. His name's Dave Yates. Um, I highly recommend looking him up. It's uh, Yates Comedy on all social media. Uh, he yeah. he makes and sells his own hot sauce, which is kind of very cool. He uh, ha ha hot sauce. Go to ha ha hot sauce.com. Uh, you can order a bottle. Uh, help the boy out because uh, when I'm not working, he's not working, and that's kind of how the world is right now. Yeah. But but th- that that's also helped a lot. Like finally having enough. You know, I I I I'm not. I don't want to say like I'm obviously not this huge celebrity, but I have enough clout where I can at least bring my friends with me. And that makes the road a little bit better because we're both away. We'll be away from our girlfriends. We'll be away from our families, you know, and stuff like that. So it's nice to at least have your buddy with you. Because if you're randomly getting set up with people, sometimes it turns out awesome and that person's amazing. Sometimes they are just not somebody you want to spend free time with. (laughs) And this at least helps you like, I know I like Dave, so let's bring him with. All right, well, before you go, I know people, if they want to find out more about you or follow you, you they can follow you on Facebook, Fred 8 or on Twitter. Um, is there any projects or things you're working on in the future that you want to highlight or mention? Um, it's a little too early on the projects to kind of have anything definitive, but uh, I'm working on my own podcast, um, trying to come up with some ideas for like some video shows, things like that. So we're definitely... Uh, we got some stuff in the cards. Like having this free time has been nice because I was going pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, and and I don't, you don't have time for a lot of that when you're every weekend. You're just new city, new city, new city, new city. So mm-hmm. this has kind of been nice to kind of recharge, reset. So uh, follow the social medias. Like you said, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff. It's at Cripple Threat 8. Um, when I have stuff more definitive, I'll be announcing all that there. But uh even even if not, just come say hi. I'm very if you're a fan of what I do, I definitely appreciate it. I'm very interactive uh, with my fans. So chances are if you if you say hi, I'll at least say hi back. It's the least I can do because no one has to care. So uh, yeah, hit me up on there and uh, keep watching. We got some cool stuff coming. And for now, are you just selling the merch at the shows? Do you have an online store or anything where people, like, given COVID, can they support you right now with buying stickers or anything like that? Um, They can't. I usually do that kind of on a case-by-case. We didn't have an online store set up yet. Um, okay. But there has been people that are like, hey, man, I was going to come to the show, and I wanted some stickers. Can you send me some? And I'm like, yep. And I can work it that way, too. So, okay, cool. so, so if you really want stuff, if you want a Club Nub shirt, uh, if you want a cripple threat, it looks similar to this <laughs> right here. I have stickers uh, for that. Um, the stickers are donations. The shirts are twenty five. So if it's something that you like, like again, like like I know a lot of people have it much worse than I do right now. I luckily had some money in the bank, and I know a lot of people are out of work. A lot of people have lost their jobs. I mean, people are sick, and you know, people definitely have it worse than me. But if you want to throw a little support, I won't tell you no. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for your time, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to get to meet you and uh, to, to share the stage with you, and uh, hopefully uh, 
when all this kind of clears up, uh, you'll be able to maybe come across to Canada one day, or I'll be able to come to the U.S. once uh, we're able to do so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. If 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 Canada ever lets Americans back up there, I, I wouldn't let us up there right now, <laughs> truth be told. But uh, yeah, good talking to you, my friend. Always a pleasure.